The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, we come celebrating today, not just because Christ has risen, but because Christ is risen. That he is reigning at this very second from his throne in heaven. That he is pouring his grace out upon his bride, the church. That he is drawing us to himself, delighting in us, rejoicing in us, singing over us, even as we sing over him. Lord God, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that you would do surgery on our hearts, that you would show us both the need for Easter and the joy for Easter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, I turned 39. Um, I figured I had one year left to do crazy things, and so I decided to pick up snowboarding for the very first time. My son and I headed over to Granite Peak, and I figured, you know what, it's going to be pretty easy for me to pick up on this snowboarding thing. After all, when I was a teenager, which I forget is 20 years ago now, I did a little bit of skateboarding, I did a little bit of surfing, and I did a little bit of skiing. And so you take, when you take those three little bits and put them together, it should make someone perfectly eligible to snowboard very easily. And so, of course, I did what any smart person does. I hopped on YouTube, watched 10 minutes of video, and hit the slopes. Well, we got out there on the bunny hill, and it started out better than I expected. A few times down, I said, all right, let's go up to the higher bunny hill. So we went up to the higher bunny hill, went down a few times, and again, things were going well. So after, you know, about 30 minutes of learning snowboarding, I said, let's go to the top, right? Let's go up, Black Diamond, here we come. So we get up to the top of the mountain, and it's amazing how much steeper it looks from the top than it does from the bottom. You know, you get up there, and you look down, and you're like, where's the bottom down there? And it kind of freaks you out a little bit, right? But we headed down the mountain once, maybe twice, and it was okay. We braked almost the entire time down the mountain. But, but what, near the end of one of those times, I was, I was sliding backwards as I was waiting for my son, and something happened where the back edge of my snowboard caught the snow. And it, it slung me down. And I hit my head very hard. I'm not sure if I had a concussion or not, but I was woozy. And thankfully, I had a helmet on. Uh, but I kind of had to take some time to regather my strength. And we continued snowboarding. I still felt woozy. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to switch over to skis. I switched over to skis. Again, bunny slope went well. Big bunny slope went well. Let's go top of the mountain. That went fine. And then I thought to myself, you know, I remember as a teenager, I really loved going off jumps. And since I'm 39 years old, I'm not 40 yet, I can still do this. And so I'm headed towards my first jump, and I'm thinking to myself, am I supposed to lean forwards or backwards? Well, I didn't make a decision, and I ended up on my head. And without doubt, that time I had a concussion because, like, the lights went out and came back on, and I saw stars, and this guy from the ski lift right above you, they put the ski lift right above the jumps just so people can laugh at you, all right? And so this guy says, dude, are you okay? I said, I'm fine, because I'm a guy, and that's what guys say, right? And so thankfully, that concussion has had no long-term effects. (laughs) 
I guess it's debatable. <laughs> you know, we often, or I should just start with myself, I often overestimate my abilities. I overestimate my, my prospect in doing certain things. Um, and I think this is really something all of us do as humans, whether it be fixing the water line in the house or whether it is doing a new project in the house, or whether it be singing. I mean, if you turn on any singing show, you can see a list of people that overestimated their abilities, right? And there are always consequences to our overestimations, whether it be a concussion, or whether it be global and forever humiliation on YouTube, right? But there are consequences to our overestimations. And our overestimations of our abilities is not only limited to our physical contributions, but also our spiritual contributions. We have this overestimation of how good a people we are. We have this overestimation of how lucky God is to have us. Our tendency is to really trust in ourselves and not in Christ and our relationship with God, because we think we are pretty good people. But today, God, by his grace, through his word, is going to tell us a hard truth. The truth that both our spiritual condition and our moral abilities are incapable of earning us his love. And he tells us this thing, not to shame us, but to rescue us from ourselves and the consequences of our overestimations of our own abilities. If you would please open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a red Bible in the seat in front of you or by you. If you don't own a Bible, that's for you to keep. We will be at page 976 in the red Bible, page 1266 in the children's Bible. Now, I know that this is not a typical Easter passage. The typical Easter passage was read earlier. It's about Jesus' resurrection. But today's passage is more about the so what. So what that Jesus raised from the dead? You know, good for Jesus. He rose for the dead from the dead. That's great for him. But what does it have to do with me today? What does it have to do with you today? And that's what this passage answers. So what about the resurrection? What does it mean for you? And what does it mean for me? And so we're going to read Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In today's passage, God starts with some hard truths. It's an intervention for your soul of sorts. 
And like all good interventions, it is done out of great love to shake us from our delusions of our spiritual condition and our spiritual abilities. And as we dive into this passage and as we look at verses 1 through 3, we're going to see what God tells us about our condition, that we start in death. And he's also going to tell us the cause of our death and the consequence of our death. And so looking at those first verse, Ephesians 2, 1, the condition of death in you, it starts like this. And you were dead. This seems fairly simple, fairly self-explanatory, but we have to inspect it closer because we so often overestimate ourselves and refuse to believe that our condition is that bad. Paul, inspired by God, does not say that you were unhealthy. He does not say that you were sick. He does not even say that you were terminally ill. He says you were dead. Now we know this is not a physical death because Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. It's not a a group of people that were physically dead and all raised from physical death. But he is saying that there is a greater death that is true of us. A spiritual death between us and God. A death of our soul. And so on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the healthiest we could be, our soul was at zero. It was flatlined. There was no life at all. My brother-in-law tells me a story of his niece who got a brand new car. And she drove her brand new car around for several years. And then all of a sudden, it just stopped working. It seized up. The motor was done. It was dead. They couldn't figure out what happened to it. And so one of her uncles asked her the question, how often do you get an oil change? And her response was, what is an oil change? That's funny. (laughs) She had no idea. She'd been driving her car for years and never got an oil change. And so here she is. She's driving this beautiful, new-looking car on the outside, but it is completely dead on the inside. You may be here this morning wearing your Easter best, looking all put together. You may look very put together throughout the week. You may be very look, look very put together at church or in Christianity. But what God tells us is that in and of ourselves, no matter how good we look on the outside, we are 100% dead on the insides. This is a hard truth, but this is true truth. God says we were dead. Now, what is the cause of death in you? 2.1 continues. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked or lived. And so what brought death to you? Your trespasses, your sins. Trespasses is deviation from God's truth. It's to violate God's commandments. Sins is an archery term, which means to miss the mark, to not hit a bullseye. And so to sin is to miss the mark of God's perfect, righteous standards. And he says, this is what you once walked in or lived in, following the course of this 
world. You see, this world will not oppose you when you oppose God because that is the course of this world is to rebel against God. And so it will encourage you in your rebellion. He continues saying, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know, I don't think many of us would say, you know, I was at one time a follower of Satan. Most of us would not say that. But what this is telling us here is that indeed we were at one time sons of disobedience. We were followers under the power of the prince of the power of the air. We are under the power of Satan. You see, all who disobey God have unknowingly fallen prey to the deceptive schemes of Satan. You know, ever since the beginning, Satan has been slyly and covertly encouraging us to question God's goodness and to defy his commands. You remember in the garden, he comes to Eve and he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? You see, this was so sly, so clever because he just changed one word. You see, God said, do not eat from this one tree, but you can eat from any other tree. And Satan slyly changes it and said, did God say you may not eat from any tree? He made God seem oppressive. He caused him to question God's goodness and God's command. And of course, they ate the forbidden fruit. God was deemed not good. And so they disobeyed. Satan continues to subtly lie to us and draw us into places that rebel against God. He'll say, drink this and your pain will go away. Look at this and your heart will be satisfied. Shame this person and you will exalt your own moral righteousness. Sacrifice time with God for more sleep or more work or more play and you will be happier. Buy this gadget or this house and you will find rest for your soul. Achieve this level of business success and you will have finally made it and you will be satisfied. All of these are lies of Satan that are slight twists of the truth. And so he tempts us to take good things and make them God things and leads us into deception. Now verse 3 continues. It says, among whom we all once lived. All. There are no exceptions to this. And then he targets three areas of our life. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, our sin problem is much bigger than we anticipated. Sin is not just what we do. But what it tells us here is that sin also happens in our passions. It happens in what we think and what we say and also what we do. Now, you may be thinking, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm a pretty good person. I I try to seek out God. I'm a spiritual person. Romans 3.10 puts it this way. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That means not even you. You see, the reason we are dead is not because of the world out there, but it's because of the person in here. The reason we are spiritually dead It's because we have fallen for the schemes of Satan because our hearts are prone towards sin. There is a newspaper editorial that asks this question. What's wrong with the world? 
There was a flood of responses. And G.K. Chesterton, who was a theologian and a philosopher, would read these responses to this question, and they were long-winded. And so G.K. Chesterton finally decided, I'm going to respond to this question. So in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? He wrote this, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Can you own this today? Can you own your own sin, your own guilt, your own shame? Or are you continually blaming it on other people? Blaming it on your mom, blaming it on your dad, blaming it on your spouse, blaming it on your kids, blaming it on your parents, blaming it on your third grade teacher, blaming it on whoever you want to blame it on. Or can you own this? Can you say, I am the cause of my own deadness. I am the cause of my sin. Because this is what God tells us today. Now, if you think that it could not get any worse, we then look at the consequence of your death. Verse 3, it says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does it mean that we were children of wrath? Well, simply put, it means that we were natural born sinners. And because of our sin, God's judgment is to be poured out upon us. You see, this happens by nature, which means sin is not something we learn. Sin is just a part of who we are from birth. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I mean, if you've ever been around a child, you know this. I mean, I didn't I don't know if you taught your kids this, but I did not teach my kids, hey, when your brother or sister says something that you don't like, punch them. I never taught, I didn't say, all right, now listen, son, um, when dad asks you to pick up a single Lego off the ground, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fall on the ground and scream like I cut off a part of your body, right? I don't teach my kids that. Nor do I teach them, hey, like when it's bedtime, just pretend like you're paralyzed. I don't teach them that. I don't have to teach them that. Do I? Do you? We have to teach them to not do those things because by nature, we are sinners. It comes so easily to us. Then he says, because of this nature of sin, we are children of wrath. We are children of God's just judgment. You see, God is not impartial towards your sin. Because God loves you and because God is holy, God hates your sin. He hates my sin. And God, because of his justice, must punish every single one of your sins. And he punishes it with his wrath. Now, I know the topic of God's wrath and hell is one that we often shy away from. But it's not one that Jesus or the Bible shies away from. James Montgomery Boyce points out that the worldly mind does not take God's wrath seriously because it does not take sin seriously. Yet if sin is as bad as the Bible declares it to be, nothing is more just or reasonable than that the wrath of a holy God should rise against it. Romans 2.8 says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Anyone else here guilty of this? says there will be wrath and fury. God is not apathetic towards your sin. He cannot just let it go because he would stop to be just. 
but God must punish every one of your sins without exception. So let's review. The condition of your death. You were a natural born sinner, dead in your sin, dead because of your own rebellion against God. The cause of death is because of your transgressions. And the consequence of your death is the wrath of God for all eternity. And now here's the most scariest part of this whole thing. Is there is nothing you can do about it. Not a single thing can you do about your spiritual deadness. There is nothing you can do about your slavery to sin. And there is nothing you can do about the coming wrath of God. There is nothing you can do. Absolutely nothing. Now I know you may be thinking, honey, we should have picked a different church this morning. This doesn't sound like a very happy Easter message. But you see, the badness of the bad news is what makes the good news of Easter so amazing. And I said, there is nothing you can do to escape the wrath of God, which is completely true. But the good news of Easter, of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, is that there is something that God has done on your behalf to aliven your dead soul. Friends, God gives us the hard news about death in you so that you might turn to the good news of the resurrection life that is available in Jesus Christ. And so let's look at the life in God. Before we go into verse four, just a reminder that it said it is in you that you are dead, sinful, and a child of wrath, and there's nothing you can do about it. But then verse four, these first two words of verse four is a watershed moment. Two of the most beautiful words in all of human history. Verse four starts like this. But God. You see how verse one starts? And you. And then there's this trail of brokenness and destruction and grieving. But then comes verse four. The good news of the gospel. But God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contains the whole of the gospel. James Boyce says, may I put it quite simply, if you understand these two words, but God, they will save your soul. If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. You have probably heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves. Nowhere in the Bible, praise Jesus, because if God only helps those that help themselves, then dead people are in a whole lot of trouble, aren't they? You ever see a dead person give themselves CPR or a dead person take themselves to get resuscitated? Dead people can't do anything. And so the good news of Easter is not that God helps those who helps themselves, but that God helps us in our deadness and makes us alive in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you notice, but if you look in your bulletin, you'll see there's kind of a mirror of subpoints. They're in different orders, but it talks about the condition and the cause and the consequence of, of life and death. And so if we compare the cause of death and the cause of life, we can see the contrast. The cause of death in verse 1 is you, but the cause of life 
is God. That's why but God are such sweet words for our soul. Now it goes on to tell us about this God. Tells us what he has done, what he is like. Tells us the cause of life in you. Verse 4. It says, but God being rich in mercy. Mercy is the pity of God. The kindness of God towards sinful, undeserving men. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Did you know it is God's love for you that sent Jesus to earth on a rescue mission? It is God's love for you that allowed Jesus to be spat upon by people that he created. It is God's love for you that held Christ to the cross until he died. It is God's love for you that raised him from the dead to give you newness of life. It is God's love for you that focused his mercy and his grace and his eyes upon you to aliven your soul. And so just to be very clear about the cause of life in you, it is not your love for God that alivens your soul. It is God's love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We love because he first loved us. Now, Christian, let me ask you, when did God first love you? Did he love you when you started to clean yourself up? When your good works started to outweigh your bad works? That could never happen. Did God love you when you started to love him? Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when or while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God loved you when you were a spiritual carcass, having nothing to contribute to your salvation. He loved you when you were rotting away. And he brought you life which we'll talk more about in a little bit, what it means to be alive. But I want you to see, and I want you to hear in this, why God loves you, why God pours his love upon you. And it's so critical to understand that God did not love you because of anything desirous in you or because your moral performance, but God loved you for one simple reason. God loved you because he loved you. He loves you because he loves you. My older boys are now in competitive basketball, and there's a lot of pressure to perform and to do well. And so it's difficult when they don't, when they have a bad game or when they perceive they have a bad game. And they're kind of hard on themselves at time, and they start to value their worth like all of us do. And so one time I was driving home with one of my sons who was greatly discouraged by the way that he had practiced that night. And we're driving home in the car, and I start to ask him these questions. I say, how much does your daddy love you? And he says, a lot. And I say, a little bit a lot or a lot a lot? And he goes, a lot a lot. This is actually a conversation we have almost every day. But then we went into new territory. I said, does your daddy love you more when you have a good game? No. No. Does he love you less when you have a bad game? 
No. I said, why does your daddy love you? Because I'm his son. That's right. And tell me, when will you stop being my son? Never. When can you sin so much that I will disown you and you will no longer be my child? Never. And so when will daddy stop loving you? Never. And then my final question, who loves you more, daddy or God? God does. That's so hard to believe. You know, I don't love my kids because they're handsome or because they're good at sports or because they're fun to hang out with. All those, all those things are true. I love my kids because I love them, because they're mine, which means nothing can separate them from my love. And if I, an evil and selfish father, can show my children some form of unconditional love, how much more can a perfect, holy, loving God unconditionally love you Friends, God is not in love with a future version of you. God is in love with you today, just as you are. It continues, by grace you have been saved. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited meaning that we cannot earn it and we cannot unearn it. This is hammered home throughout this passage, but particularly in verse 8 and 9, if you want to look there with me. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. First time saying it's not what you've done. It is the gift of God. Second, right? A gift cannot be purchased or, or it's no longer a gift, right? It has to be free. Verse nine, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Grace is the unmerited favor, the unmerited kindness, the unmerited love of God Almighty poured out upon you. Friends, this doctrine of grace cannot be overappreciated. It is so extremely valuable to our faith. In fact, there's a story of a British conference in which comparative religions gathered together. Folks from different religions came together in the same room. And the question that was asked is, what is unique about the Christian faith? And they started to debate, what are the unique things about the Christian faith? And so they went down a list. They said, what about the incarnation, about God becoming a man? And they said, no, you know, there are other religions in which God become men. And so that's not unique. They said, what about the resurrection? So no, in other religions, there's stories of, of God being raised from the dead. And so the debate continued to go on. And then C.S. Lewis walks into the room and he asks them, what is the rumpus all about? And they said, well, we're trying to figure out if there's anything at all unique about Christianity amongst the world religions. And C.S. Lewis says, oh, that's easy. Grace. After some discussion, they all agreed. The notion of God's loving coming to you absolutely 100% free of charge is unheard of in every other religion. See, only in Christianity can we be disturbingly honest about our sinfulness because only in Christianity is God's love completely unconditional. You know, friends and family may commit their unconditional love to you, but they may betray you. But God is not like man. God will be faithful to love you to the end of the ages, 
because it is by grace, not by what you do. It's because of his faithfulness that his love for you is completely unconditional and inexhaustible. And so what is the cause of death in you? You are, your trespasses and sins. But what is the cause of life? God is, who is rich in mercy, who loves us with great love, even in our deadness, and made us alive in Christ by grace. The condition of life in you. And these last two subpoints are quicker. If you look in the Greek, the original language, verses 5 through 6, the Apostle Paul does something interesting. He takes a preposition and smushes it together with three separate verbs. The preposition is soon. Are there any Greek geeks out there that know what soon means? It means with, okay? And so he takes with and he smushes them together, adds them as a prefix to three verbs. And the verbs that he smushes them with is to make alive or to aliven, to raise up from the dead, and to cause to sit down together. And so if we look back at verse 5 and 6, let me read in your Bibles and I'll read you a more wooden translation of it, okay? Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, with aliven the Christ, by grace you have been saved and with raised us up and with seated us in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that we are with alivened, with raised, and with seated? Well, it means all of these things happen in union with someone else. That none of these happen in isolation, but they happen as we are indwelt in someone and someone is indwelt in us. And verse 6 tells us that person is Christ. These things happen to us because we are united to Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ is displayed throughout the Bible, talking about grafting two trees together, about we are the vine, or sorry, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, that Jesus is the head and we are the body. And so since we are united to Christ, whatever happens to Christ happens to us. For example, I cannot say I'm going to Texas, but I'm going to leave my rib cage in Green Bay. Right? I can't do that. We're kind, of, we're kind of a thing that goes together, right? You can't disunify us. Otherwise, we stop being what we are. In the same way, we are inseparably united with Christ. And that, that's what makes Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday so precious, not just for Jesus, but also for you. Romans 6 puts it this way. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, if our old dead carcass has died with his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Somehow, mysteriously, wonderfully, amazingly, we have been so united with Christ that our old self, with its sin and its shame and its wrath, has been buried in the ground. And we have been united with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And so returning to verse 5, we read, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ by his resurrection. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, what in the world does this mean? What does it mean that he has raised us up with Christ in the heavenly places? Well, we are so united to Jesus Christ that we are not only united to him in his resurrection, but also his ascension into heaven, which means we are not citizens of this world, but heaven is our home. 
And so Jesus gives us life because we're united to him. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. We are alive because we are united to the king of life. We are united to Jesus Christ. Finally, the consequence of life in you. Again, remember the consequence of death was the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. But the contrast is so stark. Verse 7 says, So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So let me put this in perspective. Bill Gates is the richest man in the world. He has a net worth of $85.2 billion. At least last time I checked, it's probably gone up a couple billion, right? But what if, what if Bill, or I like call him Billy, what if Billy befriends you, right? And he, he starts to become affectionate towards you. And he really, he really loves you. And he says, you know, I'm going to leave my entire fortune to you. Forget my kids, forget charities, $85.2 billion left to you. That would be hard to spend all that money, wouldn't it, before you die? I mean, you have to spend like a couple billion a year. It would be fun, but it would be hard to do. Bill Gates may be the richest man in the world, but you know what? You can still measure his riches. Net worth, $85.2 billion. They just did it. They measured it. But what does verse 7 say again? So that in the coming ages, in heaven and eternity, he might show the immeasurable immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, towards us in Christ Jesus. The riches of God in Christ are so numerous, so vast, so beyond measure or comprehension, and they are ours in Christ Jesus. Bill Gates' net worth is impressive and staggering, but it is a drop of water in the ocean of God's grace and kindness and love towards you in Christ Jesus, which you get to enjoy for all eternity. And that's why we sing in amazing grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we will have no less days, not one, to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. And so the condition of your death is death, death, not sickness. The condition of your life is life and union with Christ. The cause of your death is you. The cause of life is God. The consequence of death is the wrath of God, but the consequence of life is enjoyment of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus forevermore. Let me end with this. I know many of us come here this morning and we all come to Easter at different places in our spiritual journeys. Some of you are here today and you're like the Ephesians. You can say, yes, I once was dead, but now I am alive. Praise God. I am a trophy of his grace and kindness. If that describes you this Easter, I want to exhort you. Rejoice that you are alive because you were once dead and you could still be dead if it were not for the grace and mercy and love of God. Celebrate Christ's resurrection because it is your resurrection as well. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I don't really need this whole Jesus thing. I'm a pretty good person. Well, Ephesians 2 tells us the reason you believe that is because you are dead and you don't know that you are dead and you believe you're good enough. And I pray that God would shake your soul to see the horror of your sin and turn to Christ for the life that your soul longs for. But then there is the third type of person, there are those who come here today, maybe prompted by God, 
And you say from the depth of your soul, I'm sick of being dead. I'm sick of being enslaved. I do not want to endure the wrath of God. I want to be alive. I want to enjoy Jesus' kindness for all eternity. But how do I get it? How do I get this life in Jesus Christ? Well, verse 8 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not by works, but by faith comes this new life to you. You say, what is faith? Let me illustrate it like this. A couple weeks ago, I put a zip line up for my kids. I think I have a picture of it up there. And it is a quarter-inch cable that extends about 100 feet long. And on it, I put a pulley and I put some handlebars from my playground. Right? There it is. Nice, huh? You can imagine how scary it was for the first kid to try this out. Right? Like, is it going to hold up? I'm not sure. But every kid that climbs up, the very first time they go up, they're, they're a little bit scared, a little, a little bit tentative. Sometimes they're like, I don't want to do this, and they crawl back down the tree. I'm like, that's fine. That's great. But you know what? Some of them build up the courage. And although they stand on the ground and they look at it and they believe, I believe that can hold me because I see it holding other people. They believe in their head. But what they do is they actually jump off the tree and they put their faith in it. They hold on to it for dear life. You see, from the ground, you can believe it, but you can't put your faith in it. But when you jump off and you hold on to it and entrust it to deliver you to the other side, that is an action and a practice of faith. Friends, faith in Jesus is the gateway to all of these blessings we have mentioned. To put your faith in Jesus means to jump away from your own moral righteousness or religious activities and to fully trust and cling to Jesus Christ. God calls you to have faith in the cross. Christ took on the wrath of God for you. To have faith in his death that Christ took on your spiritual corpse and buried it in the ground. And to have faith in his resurrection that Christ has raised you to new life with God so that for all eternity he might lavish upon you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness and love. From death to life. That is our theme that is the story of Easter. That is the story of Jesus. But that is also the story of all who place their faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we were dead. We may not want to believe it, but we were dead. Incapable of contributing anything to our salvation. And so you sent Jesus to come and die the death that was ours, and to raise the new life, to give us new life. And we praise you that Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. May we re be reminded of this great life that we have in Christ. Lord, I pray for those here today who are maybe trying to figure this thing out, God, that you would show them how much you love them, and that they would break free of all their meritorious promotion and cling to Christ alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.